The first lesson is from Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 1, and then Isaiah 63, and then Romans chapter 1. I have read this before, but we're going to explore these passages in a little bit more depth today as well. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then turning to Isaiah chapter 63, beginning at verse 7, we hear these words, given to Isaiah from the throne of heaven, declaring the Trinitarian nature of the living God. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And then from Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have in uh, Genesis and Isaiah uh, the Trinitarian nature of God revealed. It's revealed in, uh, in a shadowy way, perhaps, although it seems very clear. But in the New Testament, the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead is fully and perfectly revealed and, and everything is disclosed. God is, the, is the, uh, the one who ordains. He is supreme. He sends. The, the Son is the one who uh, comes and redeems. He is the angel of God's presence, the angel of God. He is the one who manifests himself 
in the desert. He's the one who leads the people through the wilderness. He's the one who supplies everything that they need. All of their material needs, all of their spiritual needs are manifest and, or um, supplied in, in, uh, in the, the eternal son who, uh, who manifests himself in this wonderful theophany, which is also a, a Christophany. And then the Holy Spirit, as we hear in, in Isaiah, the Holy Spirit is the one who was grieved at the rebellion, but it's also the Holy Spirit who comes and blesses his people and grants them rest. God is a Trinitarian God. And God, as a Trinitarian God, wants us to worship him. Worship him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All this uh, um, sort of balkanization or, or division in the church where, you know, there's uh, whole denominations that sort of um, focus on one aspect of God, his spirit or his son or the sovereignty of God. But we should be worshiping God in his triune nature. Every Sunday, we, we pray to God the Father in the name of the Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, trusting that the Holy Spirit is the one who is making uh, the, the benefits of Christ um, making the, uh, our, our prayers acceptable in the, the, uh, the benefits of Christ. The Trinitarian nature of God is writ large in the New Testament, but it's also writ large in the Old Testament as well. And the saints in the Old Testament were trusting in this God, mysteriously revealed, but they did trust in him. And we follow that. We have, there's great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, Today's sermon is divided, as usual in, in, in my sermons, um, in three points, three major points. First major point, man does not know the true God. Second major point, the true God is triune. And then third major point, how are we to live and worship this God? First major point. The first major point is man does not know the true God. Not in his own nature, he does not know the true God. Since fallen man does not know the true God, man, fallen man, invents his own version or versions of God to suit his perverted, fallen, wicked, and twisted nature. I could keep on adding um, adjectives, but I won't. You get the point. Man's nature, fallen, man's fallen nature is wicked, desperately wicked through and through. And if we were left to our own devices, we would continually and gladly invent false gods to worship material gods that we could worship. Stoicism is a perfect example of a wonderful uh, philosophical system that had at its center a, a material god, it seems to be. Um, but there's other ways, perverted, twisted ways that, that man invents gods. There's many people that worship money, many people that worship power, many people that worship their bodies, many people that worship their lusts. The list goes on because it seems that whatever comes into the mind of man will become a god in the fallen man's smithy. He will forge a god in the smithy of his heart uh, to, uh, to suit his own ends. Man is guilty of transgressing against the true god, the only god, the triune god. Well, in Romans chapter 3, the word of God um, makes a universal, absolute declaration about man. Fallen man is morally corrupt. He's morally corrupt, root and branch, in his mind and in his spirit, and that manifests itself in his body. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, declares, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's just a, a thin sliver of, of Romans chapter 3. The Word of God clearly declares that man does not know God. And man doesn't know God because his nature, man's nature, is corrupt through and through. Root and branch is corrupt. According to Romans chapter 1, men's, men's moral corruption, that is men and women's moral corruption, leads them to create false religions. There's all kinds of false religions out there. And there are departments in colleges and universities especially that um, investigate and study world religions. So when you think about it, that is a really weird preoccupation for scholars to, um, to focus on. World religions, because it's really false religions. These people are studying idols. And they're not, it's not to um, alert people to the dangers of these false religions and these false idols and these false gods, but to celebrate them. That's what our higher education has come to these days. The, uh, the university I went to, to uh, uh, for seminary uh, changed its um, Department of Theology, which was to be the, the um, study of the, the doctrines of God. They changed that department into uh, world religions because they lost sight of the truth of God and they began to worship man instead. There is nothing to learn from world religions except the depths of man's depravity. And yet there are scholars who delight in that. The Word of God shows and tells us that the origins of all humankind's many religions comes from one source, man's morally corrupt nature. Man is defiled, defiled in his nature. And this defilement is at his own hands. Man is the author of this defilement. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. The religions of the world are not beautiful examples of man's creative spirit expressing itself? No, they're not. It's just uh, a catalog of perversions, catalog of transgressions. It's a catalog of man shaking his puny fist at God, thinking that he knows better than God, thinking that he doesn't need God's revelation, that he can meet God on his own terms. But nothing could be farther from the truth, and it's not God being a spoil sport to reveal that to us. God reveals that the dangers of that because man-made religions will only lead to our destruction in this world and in the next. God must dissuade us powerfully of the beauty of our inner being. He does so in and through Jesus Christ as the word is applied to our hearts. No, the world religions are evidence of man's sinful, rebellious disobedience. Man will not submit to the true God and in rebellion invents false gods to fill his mind, to clutter his heart, and to lead him astray. But it's all man's fault. This misunderstanding or understanding of man stems from Scripture, the, the idea that, that man is, is corrupt, root and branch. Exodus chapter 32 recounts a striking illustration of man's inclination towards false religions and inventing false religions. Almost immediately, you know the story from Exodus chapter 32, almost immediately after the Hebrew nation is liberated from Egyptian slavery, yea, God, they beg Aaron to make them a golden calf, which they then worship. They've just been liberated from the dominion of sin, and immediately, what did they do? They want to return to their sin. 
They want to return to their false ways, their false religions. This is the perversion of man. They can't relate to an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable triune God who is spirit and who manifests himself in acts of mercy and liberation. No, they want a tangible God that they can see and touch and be dazzled by and manipulate for their own purposes. And so Aaron obliges them and he makes for them a golden calf as if a, a stupid statue can replace and substitute the living God. I mean, the, the perversions of man's imagination. So Aaron obliges and makes them a golden calf, a false idol. And that is what they worship. And the Lord God Almighty is furious with them and orders Moses to grind that idol all of that gold down into dust and make the people drink this concoction. What a punishment. What a punishment. And they drink it. They're forced to. Moses. Moses forces them to. He acts as a judge. And he forces them. You want this God? Then drink it. This is the God that you want? Then take it in. Imbibe this God. They literally drink the very thing that damns them. Isn't that what sin is all about? We want, we want a, a sinful thing. We want it so badly that we'll take it in. And the very thing that we want is the thing that destroys us. That's the, 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 the great perversion of false religions. It promises so much. And it, all it delivers is perdition. It delivers perdition. And we all know that. We've had experience of that in our own lives. I don't have to go around with a crystal ball or, you know, follow you around uh, this week to, to know that that is the inclination of each one of your hearts. It's the inclination of my heart, too. And it's revealed in Scripture. It's revealed in Scripture. Our inclination is to follow after the ways of the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, thinking that maybe that is going to be the thing that, uh, that fills us and, and um, makes us complete. And then we discover, much to our dismay, that we have been led down the primrose pass path of dalliance, and we have strayed. That's what um, David learned firsthand, the apple of God's eye. He strays and he discovers that the, the thing that he thought he desired most was the thing that crippled him spiritually. <coughs> crippled him spiritually. When will we learn? When will we learn? We hear the account of the golden calf and probably think it's hard to comprehend. How could people be so dumb, so morally blind, so spiritually inept? Why would Israel do something so stupid? They had just been liberated from sin. Why would they then turn to it? Why would they then, why would they then, then return to it? Israel had just been rescued from slavery by God in a clear display of God's divine power. Ten plagues described over the first 12 chapters of Exodus. God goes into great detail to show just how powerful he is that his power is, um, is supreme over the material world. He's able to control it. He's able to govern it. He does everything he pleases. Pharaoh was the most powerful man, the most powerful despot in the world at that time. A massive army, all kinds of material wealth at his disposal, all kinds of colonies that, uh, that he governed. And he was nothing, nothing before the living God. God made an example of him. Israel had just been rescued, and yet they wanted to return. But God showed them the folly of their ways. And yet as soon as Israel encounters difficulty, she turns to false religions. You know, we might not turn to false religions in, in our life, but we turn to false hopes or false consolations, false dreams. 
Now, we know better, and yet we do that. And then we, uh, you know, one day we wake up and we think, why did, I, why did I think that way or why did I do that way? That's why every Sunday it's so important to uh, declare the excellencies of Christ, to remind us of the, uh, the moral code, the, the Ten Commandments, to confess our sins regularly, because God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that we are weak. He knows our condition. He knows that we are frail. And even this past week, we have wandered. We know the living God. We are redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And yet, we continue to think that we know better. And maybe this little belief that suddenly comes into my head will be the solution to all my problems, even though it goes counter to everything that I know about the living God. God is so merciful. We create images of God in our own mind, but they're nothing like the true God. The second major point, the true God is triune. The triune nature of the Lord is revealed throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The Old Testament. Uh, let's look at two aspects of God's uh, triune nature, two major ways that God reveals himself in creation and redemption. This is so important. We've emphasized this before, but it's so important. The two great acts of the living God, displaying his power, his majesty, his mercy, his wisdom, are creation and redemption. Creation. God creating everything. So wonderful. I, uh, the, the, the creation, is, as described by Moses in Genesis 1, bears witness to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all actively involved in the act of creation. We've already heard it before, but it bears repeating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. The Holy Spirit hovering, God the Father declaring, and the, whole, and, uh, the Son manifesting himself in light. All of this declaring the Trinitarian nature of God. Trinitarian nature in creation. We should praise the living God for that disclosure. Natural man doesn't know that. Natural man does not know the Trinitarian nature of God in, in, um, in, in the, uh, as it's manifest in the, the creation. And the redemption of Israel, as described by Isaiah in Isaiah 63, also bears witness to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were actively involved in the exodus from Egypt. The exodus was sustained, um, ordered, ordained, sustained, and pulled off by the Trinitarian nature of God, by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 63, verse 8, God the Father described, um, describes Israel as his children, implying that he is their father. Surely they will be my people, my children, who will not deal falsely. Only a father would say that of his children, that they are his children. In verse 8 and 9, God the Son is described as the Savior and angel of the Lord. Quote, and he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah is declaring that the Savior was manifest, Jesus Christ manifest in, in the Exodus. And finally, in verse 10, we hear of God, the Holy Spirit, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Yes, all three persons of the Trinity manifest in redemption, and it's revealed to the Old Testament saints by Isaiah. 
So God is creator, and God is redeemer, and this creator-redeemer God is triune. From the beginning, the triune God is revealed to be Trinitarian in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Lord deliberately discloses his true nature in the two key acts that he accomplishes, creation and redemption. Fallen man, as we noted, is driven by a wicked desire to create many false gods. And every man-made religion has various gods who create and who redeem. And these are usually little gods, provincial gods, local gods, who create bits and pieces of the world. One false god creates the mountains. Another god creates the woods. A third god creates the waters, and so on and so forth. You know, you go to um, Great Britain these days, and, and the... Um, any tour that talks about the pagan past of, of Britain and looks at um, the Druids or whatever, they'll say, you know, this was a sacred grove and, and this was the, the god of this grove was so-and-so and over here is a, a sacred hill and, and this was the god of this sacred hill. A balkanized series of gods, not connected, simply sort of doing their own thing. That's what man envisions um, the god to be is this, this uh, multiplicity of gods. One creates the mountains, another the rivers, and so forth. But the Bible shows and tells us that all things, the mountains, the woods, the trees, all things were created by a single, great, unique God who created all things from nothing by the word of his power in the span of six days and all very good. It's not a, a bunch of little gods working hard and working piecemeal. It's one supreme God creating all things by the wisdom of his power. Holy Scripture reveals that the Lord God Almighty and he alone is creator. And the same is true when it comes to redemption. Fallen man will seek help from a local God to rescue him from troubles. You, know, you see that all the time in the, uh, the archaeological evidence from um, the ancient Near East. There was all the, you know, you can go to um, places in the Middle East where they have um, garbage dumps, ancient gar garbage dumps. And just like um, now, garbage dumps hold all kinds of things in the ancient world, including prayer tablets. These prayer tablets have um, survived over many millennia because they're made out of clay usually or some other hard substance and then um, um, gets concretized. And they can read these, these um, prayer tablets and there are prayers to different gods who uh, the people hoped would liberate them from an illness or financial distress or whatever. Not one god looking after all of them, but all these little gods. That's how man envisions redemption. You know, you're going to pray to your local god for one god for money, another god for health, another uh, god for wisdom. But the Bible discloses that the, the true God of redemption is the Lord God Almighty. Fallen man will seek help from a local God. But it's the true God, the living God, who redeems the Lord God Almighty. The two greatest divine acts in all of human history, in all of natural history, and uh, of everything, creation and redemption, are not the results of a series of little gods, Rather, they are the work of a single great God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. And this God is the author of both the creation of all things and the redemption 
of his people from the dominion of sin. And that redeeming God is most perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. The confusion of the pagan mind is illustrated in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, you remember Naaman? He was a commander of the Syrian army. He had leprosy and, and he was in um, the, the uh, pits of despair. And uh, he thought that maybe he should cleanse himself in his great river. I can't remember which river it was, Tigris or one of those rivers. And uh, um, it was to no success. And then his wife's slave girl says, you should wash yourself and cleanse yourself of your leprosy in the Jordan River. And Naaman, who's a big, powerful man, thinks this is ridiculous. Why would I go to some rinky-dink river when I've got a great river to um, bathe in? Because, of course, the more important the river, the more important the God attached to that river, at least according to the pagan mind. His wife, as I said, had a servant girl, and this servant girl told Naaman to wash in the waters of the Jordan River. But the Jordan was not considered to be very important by other nations. It was only considered important by Israel, and Israel was an insignificant nation. At first, Naaman, this great commander, scoffed at the suggestion. But at his wife's urging, he finally relented and went to the Jordan to be cleansed. This little river of no consequence, he finally said, okay, I'll go, thinking that nothing would come of it. And the Lord God Almighty cleansed him of his leprosy as he bathed in the Jordan River. Now, the lesson is not that the Jordan River has um, salvific power. It's that God is the one who controls and governs the natural world. And he will do whatever he pleases to manifest his glory. And he often manifests it in small ways to humble man. He used an insignificant river to reach Naaman. The Lord created all things, and he is mighty to redeem. And the, the, um, the lesson is, look to the Lord, not to the natural world. Jesus mentions Naaman, the Syrian commander, in Luke chapter 4, verse 27. This is what he says. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus remembered that. Jesus discloses that in his lessons. Although it doesn't explicitly state that Naaman was saved, redeemed by Christ, it strongly suggests it. Jesus is remembering Naaman and saying that he was cleansed. What's the greater cleansing? The physical cleansing or the moral spiritual cleansing? Of course, it's the moral spiritual cleansing. And that's the lesson that surely Jesus is pointing to, that, Jesus, that Naaman trusted in the living God. Before, Naaman was, was trusting in the natural world and his own power. But then Naaman was redeemed and saw the living God. The act of creation revealed in Genesis is explained by the New Testament as a Trinitarian God. And that Trinitarian God is most perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ teaches us that God, the supreme God, is the Father. He also teaches us that the Savior is himself by dying on the cross. He demonstrates that so perfectly. And he also teaches about the Holy Spirit to be one who would come. After he ascends into heaven, this one who would come to be the comforter was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. 
Well, how are we to live now that we um, have heard about this Trinitarian God and how he's revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Old Testament in shadows and the New Testament in substance? How are we to live? I want to give you some, some specifics rather than um, theoretical. When faced with the overwhelming weight of human ignorance of the triune God and the good news of Jesus Christ, the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy asked this question. He said, what must we do? When we're facing human suffering, what must we do? What is the response of Christians? We see the world, we see its suffering, what must we do? The solution he gave, I'm not saying that you should follow um, Tolstoy's uh, solution because it was atrocious. Tolstoy said simply, we must take care of people's physical, temporal needs. When we see suffering, that's what we must do. This is the social gospel. The church must feed and clothe people. It must house and employ people. And it must teach and train people. These are all very good things. But if it's not done in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's nothing. It's just man-made religion. And so often the church falls into that trap. In short, the church must be the, at the forefront of social transformation, a gospel that transforms society and hopefully changes the lives of individuals for the better. Tolstoy's compassion for the downtrodden and the social gospel's wish to make things better does not touch the root of the problem because the root is the heart. It's human nature. We can clothe uh, broken people all day long and into the night, but that does not transform their hearts. We can feed them, we can train them, but the fallen man, but fallen man has a fallen nature, and we're just dealing with the exteriors when we do that. We must declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ and his gospel and his solution, which is Trinitarian. In Romans chapter 10, the Bible addresses the problem of how to reach people that they might hear of Jesus Christ the Lord and trust in him savingly. We want people to know the living God. In verse 9, Paul declares, this is chapter 10, verse 9, Paul declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a very simple solution. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Systematic theology, doctrine, all of that stuff, very, very important. Very, very important. But it all boils down to, do you believe that God sent a Savior? And is that Savior the Lord Jesus Christ? Was he raised from the dead to save you from sin? That's what the doctrine and the systematics all boils down to, Christ and him alone. He then asks a series of rhetor Paul then asks a series of rhetorical questions to stir the minds of his audience to think carefully about the weighty matter before them. Souls are at stake. And so Paul asks a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are the ills of the world solved? 
they're solved in Jesus Christ. But men and women need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will unbelievers confess and believe the Lord Jesus Christ if they've never heard the gospel? They've never heard the, the good news preached. And how will they hear the good news about Jesus if they've never heard the truth, the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the great savior, the eternal son who created all things and who redeems his people? The answer, the answer is set forth in verses 14 and 15 of Romans 10. They must hear the truth of Christ proclaimed by someone whom God has sent for that express purpose, a servant who delivers the good news of Jesus Christ on God's behalf. Put in the simplest terms, people need to hear the word as it's proclaimed by the minister on the Lord's day, as it's being done here right now. This is the ordinary means of grace, brothers and sisters. Fool, foolish to the world, but the wisdom of God. Since this is the case, the church should make every effort, every effort to summon people to hear the official proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thus, you and I are to invite our family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that they, might too, they too might hear and believe. We're trusting the Lord. And, that, and have them sit under the proclamation of the truth so that God can manifest himself as he promised through the means of grace that he has ordained, the proclaimed word. We may not see results immediately when we invite our friends and family and coworkers, but we commit the results to the living God. Missionaries and overseas ministries know this fact all too well, that it's slow work, slow work. Think of the missionaries we know. You may know some missionaries, I know some missionaries, you might know the same missionaries. What do they tell us? They often tell us the, um, that the results are not instantaneous. You know, that's one of the reasons why we pray for the missionaries. Lord, grant them patience and fortitude um, in their time on the mission field because it can be slow. I remember reading a, a missionary's report. He said he was issuing a, um, a thanksgiving to God. He said, after 10 years, we finally have a new soul come to our Bible study. He was celebrating one person after 10 years. Slow work, not instantaneous. We want things to be instantaneous, but that's not God's ways. Rather, cultivating relationships with local people is a long-term effort. So missionaries patiently foster friendships over weeks, months, and even years, sharing the gospel quietly, humbly, and patiently waiting on the Lord. May God grant us the grace to rest in the finished work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is the great creator. He is the great redeemer. And may we boldly declare the truth of this God, the triune God, to those we know, that the triune God may be glorified in the proclamation and that we might serve him with obedience and love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious and kind. You are patient with us beyond all human measure, for you are the, uh, the God who is, is merciful, slow to anger, and, and quick to forgive, abounding in graciousness. 
Father, we pray that as we meditate on your triune nature and we, we think about the marvel that uh, the Trinitarian nature of God was manifest in creation and in redemption, we pray that we would glorify you and, and magnify you. And as we share the good news of Jesus Christ with those we meet, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless our efforts as meager as they may be. For we want your name honored throughout the nations, in our neighborhood, in our, in our workplaces. Father, we pray that you would grant us the grace to rest in your work and trust in your ways. And may you fill us with great joy as we live for you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.